and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. If you've listened to the show before, we used to be going down the AFI's Top 25 Scores list, but we finished that. Yeah. So today, for the first time, we are talking about a randomly chosen score. Yeah, at the end of last episode, we had a random lottery drawing out of a curated bucket of scores, and the movie that got assigned to us this time was 1999's Best Picture winner, the somewhat satirical, tragic comedramedy, American Beauty, score by Thomas Newman. American Beauty was written by Alan Ball, it was produced by Bruce Cohen and Dan Jinks, and it was directed in his feature film directorial debut by Sam Mendes. John, say a little bit about American Beauty. All right, I'll say as little as I can. It's about middle-aged suburbanites seeking meaning in their lives with varying degrees of success. Uh, And also some teenage suburbanites. The middle-aged suburbanites are Lester and Carolyn Burnham, played by Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening. Their daughter, Jane Burnham, is played by Thora Birch. Their neighbor's son, Ricky Fitz, is played by Wes Bentley. Also Mina Suvari, Allison Janney, Chris Cooper, and Peter Gallagher. That's really everyone in the movie. Sure. So Kevin Spacey's Lester Burnham has somewhat of a midlife crisis, decides that his life is meaningless, makes abrupt changes, some healthy, some not, and uh, (laughs) eventually, as he tells you in his opening narration, dies. (laughs) Good enough? Sure. Yeah, good enough. So, Andy, before we get started, is there anything uh, you and I need to talk about here? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. How are you doing? I'm all right. right. Yeah. Okay, good. How's how's life? How's the weather? It's pretty different from here, I bet. Uh, It's nice here. Oh, then it's the same, because it's been nice here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's been a bit of June gloom. Is that an L.A. thing? Yeah. Is that something I'm supposed to know about as a human being? Because I've never heard of that. (laughs) Yeah, that is an L.A. thing. Um, it gets kind of overcast and and not as sunny as you might customarily think of it being in Los Angeles. uh, And why is that? In June. I don't know. Something about marine layer, I'm going to say. I'm going to say marine layer. That's an atmospheric layer? Yeah, like it comes off of the ocean. Uh, You know, just the way the weather goes. I never liked saying June gloom because it's, uh, you know, slant rhyme. Yeah, it's just barely anything. And that's the worst kind of thing to say. June gloon, I'm tempted uh-huh. to say instead. Um, but that's just overcast? I mean, who cares? It's fine. I like <laughs> it when it's overcast. Yeah, it actually, sometimes it's a, it's a welcome respite from the, <laughs> from the crushing psychic weight of having it be sunny and beautiful all the time here. I'm right on the edge of using my air conditioner here mm. uh, on the East Coast. Some, you know, it's like hour by hour. I'm like, does it really merit this? Uh, it's flipping back and forth. Uh-huh. This is a fun little uh, prosaic conversation we've been having. Oh, we're not using this. I just was having conversation. Listeners, what Andy doesn't know is that I have been playing music from American Beauty under some of the last portions of this conversation. Is this real? <laughs> and... Those things that we were talking about that had the music under them, wow, they sounded like they were really 
about something meaningful, didn't they? Oh, I don't know, John. I don't know about this. <laughs> you can't screw with me like that. I really can. I don't want to be on a podcast if I don't know that I'm on a podcast. <laughs> well, so what are you getting at? What are you saying? What did it sound like? Tell me what it's supposed to have sounded like. Well, I think it was supposed to sound like this everyday sort of boring weather stuff that we were talking about. The sort of thing that everybody has to think about one way or another. Boy, it really had some some depth and something uh, meaningful behind it. That's what I think the music... Yeah, articulate it. What kind of depth did it have? What kind of meaning did it have? What kind of depth did it have? What kind of meaning did it have? What's the myth, to use our language from last time? What's the... Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like I wanted to pick up right where we left off in the AFI wrap-up episode. It was such a valuable encapsulation of the effect that movie music has that we've been talking about this whole show, and you really put it uh, in a nutshell well when you said that the music is expressing the underlying myth of what you're watching. I think that we kind of couldn't have picked a better example of music serving the idea of an underlying myth than this movie. Because in this movie, I guess to get into my review of this movie, Mm. I think that the underlying myth of this movie is that there is an underlying myth. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're on nearly the same page here. I oh, was going to say something similar. You get to say your way too. Go ahead. How are you going to put it? Well, I was going to say, I think that this style of music, which Thomas Newman has written for many movies, this being neither the first nor the last movie for which he wrote music that sounds kind of like this. He has this style. It sounds kind of like this. And I think it creates kind of a similar underlying myth, as it were, in many places where it appears. And I would say that that myth is something like that life has a satisfying order to it. Mm -hmm. That there is meaning and a plan and a narrative sense behind things. That there is a structure into which things fit. And in this movie, the substance of the movie is about people wanting to believe that life has an order behind it and a meaning. And so the music here clicks with that in a particularly resonant way. Yeah, well, the idea of an underlying order and structure is very nicely evoked in, you know, we're listening to this music and you might describe it as a sort of a repetitive rhythmic wash. It bears some similarity to some things that we've discussed previously on the show before, I would say. You know, you might be tempted to use similar ways of describing the style as sorts of things that we said about Bernard Herrmann and Alexandre Desplat, where he sets up repetitive layers that come in and out. Now, his layers are made up of very different things than Herrmann's and Desplat's layers, but I think it's still a similar idea of repetitive layers. I noted that, too, that in common with Hermann, there's kind of an expanse of material gets laid out. You see several times in this movie where very different action involving very different characters gets scored with the same continuous piece of music. Yeah, like when we see Kevin Spacey's character Lester blackmailing his way out of his job and leaving his office. I'm just an ordinary guy with nothing to lose. And then it cuts to uh, his wife, Carolyn, and at Benning at lunch with Peter Gallagher. Carolyn. Buddy. 
And that same kind of rhythmic wash is still hanging around. It's almost like, you know, whatever feeling we were having about Kevin Spacey leaving his job is still in the air. And then sure enough, it continues through that scene to now we see Ricky filming a dead bird. Kind of the same music has drawn a line through these different uh, elements. What are you doing? I was filming this dead bird. Why? Because it's beautiful. Yeah, or the same music has just been the same universe in which they're taking place. I mean, you said we had the same feeling about it, but I'm not sure that it's doing that. It is getting at some kind of lower level in the, uh, it's closer to the foundations of this dramatic universe. It's not saying here's this scene and here's this scene and they each have these feelings. It's kind of saying this is how this universe operates. And I think that this kind of music, which is generally more energetic, more pop inflected at some level, certainly than Bernard Herrmann, Mm -hmm. it's actually fairly assertive about that layer which is not the dramatic layer that's right in front of us it's something a little behind that it's you know what is the order that governs this what is the meaning that these things tap into and i was gonna call to if you look at thomas newman's career Like, if you go back to one of his first movies here, uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, 1985. This is when he was just starting out, but that's a fairly well-known movie. It's a very 80s kind of a movie. It's charming. It has this music in it. Which, you know, you hear that it's much more synth-heavy. It has that 80s sound where they were really into the world of the synthesized sound. But it's still kind of structured the same way, and it still kind of imparts the same feeling you know you might recognize this sound as like oh yeah a lot of movies in the 80s were kind of going for that sound and the feel then was basically everything you're seeing is cool and (laughs) this narrative is structured this is part of an order this is Mm -hmm. is meaningful at some philosophical level that doesn't need to be you know care doesn't really need to be given on the part of the creators to well, why is it meaningful? <laughs> Who says it's meaningful? What, what does that add up to? You don't say. It's just something that got layered over lots of movies in the 80s. And I think that he carried it forward into the 90s. And in this movie, we're watching characters kind of struggling as best they can to hold up their, as you say, their underlying myths, the underlying myth that gets Annette Benning's character through the day or Kevin Spacey's character through the day. And so in this case, when we're watching these three sequences that have not too much to do with each other, with this kind of trust me this world makes sense music underneath it mm-hmm. that feels potent and it doesn't just feel like a useful wallpaper which is what it is in lots of places Andy before we go too much further I, I gotta ask you uh, do you like this movie? oh it's so complicated John it's, I have very complicated feelings about this movie okay that's do you have uh, simple feelings? <laughs> Uh, I have both. I I have both simple and complex feelings. I can do both. When it came out, I liked it a lot. Yep. I think that's true of a lot of people. I remember at the time being very touched that it was a movie that was in this kind of cynical black comedy register at first and then worked its way to something very, you know, open-hearted, life-affirming. I thought, oh, what a neat experience to have at the movies. It's not the direction movies often go. And I thought that was such a remarkable thing about it. And when it won Best Picture, I thought, oh, that's why, because it did that. That thing. Movies don't often do that. 
Now it's uh, obviously troubled for a lot of reasons to go back to this movie. I also, with a slightly more analytical eye, see it as a kind of confused movie that just manages Mm -hmm. to pull that off. And uh, I can sort of direct my attention to what it's pulling off or to its confusion as I choose. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I saw it when it came out and yeah, I thought it was good. And, you know, it made sense that it won Best Picture and won a bunch of Oscars. And I hadn't seen it since then, but I listened to the score an awful lot. And I was very well aware of the score being a a real landmark in scoring that got imitated all over the place. And then indeed, when I became a composer myself for film scores, I have very often been asked to imitate this kind of a score. So my appreciation of the score sort of became divorced from the film because I hadn't seen it since it came out. But then coming back to it to see it, uh, boy, uh, it did not hold up for me because, yeah, I think it was very confused. I think that its message is sort of you know, don't worry, your humdrum, little, mediocre, privileged life actually has deep meaning somehow, just because we say it does. If only you can tap into the vital life force of ogling underage girls, then you too can achieve deeper meaning. Uh, it's very creepy, and that's without even getting into, you know, whether or not we're allowed to like Kevin Spacey's movies anymore. Yeah. On which point, which it's hard not to think about that given the substance of this movie. Yeah. I did see a quote from Thora Birch. Who plays Jane, his daughter in the movie. That's right. But also the subject of some ogling. Uh, fair enough. She said that she wanted to remind everyone, quote, that it was an entire community who made this film. We all love this film and it doesn't have anything to do with Kevin at the end of the day. <laughs> and so I thought I'm happy to yeah. I'm happy to meet Thora Birch where she would like me to meet her, which is not talk about Kevin Spacey. Yeah, sure. That's fine. You know, in in retrospect, I kind of feel like I'm glad that Kevin Spacey did that campaign of really obnoxious commercials for, what was it, E-Trade? I don't remember. To kind of help wean me off of liking him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but fine. Anyway, sure, we don't have to talk about it. Yes, regardless of who the actor is, I think you obviously are getting at something significant when you say the message seems to be, yeah, disgusting or incoherent, which I think is more accurate. And I think it's important to note about this movie that it changed from the script to the finished product sort of organically. And you can find Sam Mendes, the director, Steven Spielberg, the producer, and I think other people saying, you know, the movie we made is not the movie we thought we were making almost in so many words. And my understanding of what this process is, is that originally the screenplay had a frame story that was a very cynical frame of the kid characters, you know, Wes Bentley and Thor Birch's characters, on trial at the beginning for the death of Kevin Spacey's character, and then at the end being found guilty for the crime that they didn't commit, and that the whole thing had a very sardonic kind of attitude And then somehow in the rehearsal and performance and filming and editing, I think they just got so captivated by the really good humane performances that the leads were giving that they thought, you know, the human element in this movie is really compelling and doesn't need to be taken so sardonically. We can really lean into that. And then the finished movie leans into that in a way that uh, the script isn't really built around, but that's where we end up. So you have a pretty confusing object, but it's sort of artistically, 
it got there because the artists making the movie were like, hey, this feels pretty good when we do this. And hey, this is uh, kind of <laughs> stimulating and interesting. So let's go in that direction. So I don't think there was a plan behind it. Yeah, well, I think that jives very nicely <laughs> with the fact that it's about creating this feeling that there is something deeper behind things without there actually being anything deeper behind things that they want to say about them. They just want to give you this feeling. I think it's like the feeling that Thora Birch's character has is meant to be representative of, you know, an angst-ridden teenager who thinks that the creepy poetic weirdo is really cool. Like, it's a cliche that a teenage girl would be captivated by such a guy because he's so deep. Wow, dig how deep, man. I just feel like the movie kind of got infected with this feeling of, wow, dig how deep everything is. And that's what I think like the motivating force behind it became. And I think it became that so successfully that it won Best Picture enormously due to Thomas Newman's music. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I hoped that's where that sentence was ending. Yeah. I think that you could make an argument that there is a coherent spiritual message in the movie as long as your primary text is the music and not the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there is a kind of spiritual spectrum or really two zones that the score is in and it aligns them i think in a smart and sensitive way with big blocks of the drama and at that block level at a very large level what it's saying makes sense and i think what it's saying is there's this world that you hear at the beginning right kevin spacey is telling you about how his life has lost all meaning and he is dead already, which is what they call this track on the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You hear this little marimba figure that just mm -hmm. moves along, and then you hear music relating to this when you see him on his dubious midlife crisis journey as he quits his job and works out and starts smoking pot and obsessing over his teenage daughter's friend. You also hear music related to this when his wife is completely fixated on material achievement in the realm of real estate. Definitely this uh, I will sell this house today music yeah, exactly. is in that same family as what you're describing, but I would draw a subtle subdivision. Okay, but anyway, let's suppose... But yes. This palette yes. and this, certainly this rhythmic energy yes. with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. another palette, which is delicate, no driving rhythm, piano rather than a marimba is forward. It's in kind of a haze of string textures in the background. And other ambient sounds. Ambient sounds, that's right. Synthetic ambient pads. And it is playing poignant, kind of melancholy, mysterious, and emotionally, you know, very vulnerable music compared mm. to this wall of rhythm and sound of the other stuff. There's this very fragile kind of place that yeah. it goes. These are very different sound worlds, and they get divvied up for different kinds of scenes. And at the end, mm -hmm. Kevin Spacey ostensibly has a kind of revelatory experience where he realizes that, you know, his journey toward having a Ferrari and having sex with a teenager <laughs> is is all off to the side. It's and not a Ferrari, right? He gets a... What does he get? What, what car does he get? He gets a... It's a Pontiac. 1970 Pontiac Firebird, the car I've always wanted and now I have it. I rule. <laughs> At the end, he's sort of like, oh, uh, something else is what matters. And what is it? Uh, he gives a speech about 
beauty in life that he's noticed over the years and happiness and of course his family and love and the seasons and his grandmother's hands but in a sense that is all an attempt to articulate what the music is getting there first and telling right. us it's that fragile vulnerable non-rhythmic place that the music has been before it returns the music from the famous plastic bag scene comes back at the end mm-hmm. and then it kind of goes off into uh, death and transfiguration it transcends into this kind of floaty music that's where he ends and if you just step way back and don't look at the characters or what they're doing this makes a kind of sense yeah it's a step away from material things go towards your more basic human feelings which are stop and smell the roses indeed yeah basically things that feel like this they occupy this space in your head but the resolution to your spiritual questions will always be things that feel like this. If that's what this movie says, it's a pretty good movie. That's a nice thing to say. (laughs) Uh, And then the specifics are all over the place. That's exactly right. That is what this music says. I mean, that's absolutely why people connected with this movie. For sure. Yeah, and then if you go in and realize that it's like, this guy's a, a lech at best, and that's like supposed to be part of his emotional development. It's kind of gross. Right, it's crazy. This guy, yeah, is a lech whose greatest ambition is to abuse a child. Right. And so you have to sort of see this as like... And the movie kind of like is rooting for him to abuse the child. Like that's Well, that's the crazy creepy thing. But if you imagine a movie where there was a character like that who is absolutely an anti-hero and you're supposed to be like, oh my God, this is not go. Oh my God, this is terrible. And it's kind of like a black comedy attitude about this amorality. That's a kind of a coherent movie. The incoherence comes in making his spiritual journey kind of a universal spiritual journey that we all relate to. That's where it goes crazy. And indeed, I am led to understand that this extremely cynical frame, which I think would have cast everything into doubt, was cut late in editing, very late in editing, that they made this huge decision that, you know, the uplifting human movie is too real not to fully commit to right but then they were left with all this seedy stuff yeah who would why is this your damn plot right (laughs) yeah i'm led to understand that alan ball originally started to write this story because he was thinking about the amy fisher joey buttafuoco story and then it got and it, it followed a different path yeah organically all right anyway thomas newman does this really well you mentioned that lone marimba figure that starts off the whole movie yeah or i guess it starts off the the body of the movie there's this little prelude of the home video of Thor Birch that comes back again later. That's the first thing you see. But then when the movie proper, as it were, starts, we start hearing this one marimba figure. You keep hearing that same figure. It's just this one repeated thing. That's a layer that he sets in motion that he's just going to put other things on top of it and around it. And it's so effective. It's kind of miraculous to me how full of a composition this feels when in terms of, you know, musical content, there's basically one thing. I suppose the real composition is in picking all of these instrumental textures in which to dress it up, but 
I think it's astonishingly effective. Yeah, prepping for this, I watched this interview Thomas Newman did a couple years ago where he said something like he usually keeps the harmonies kind of static. He doesn't yeah. move things around and he doesn't score events usually. What he does is use color and the evolution of color and shifting colors mm -hmm. to engage you or intrigue you or draw you in, something like that. Well, boy, is he doing that in this cue. And indeed, in pretty much every cue. I mean, his compositional style, at least this style that comes up in a lot of his scores, is very much about comings and goings in the world of color. Mm. Here's this instrument came in, yeah. and this instrument went out, and this instrument put a little curly cue on top, right. and then the bass dropped out, and just playing with this ongoing phenomenon. Yeah, sometimes he'll introduce the instrument very gradually, and you know, he keeps the whole band in, and then adds one little twang-a-lang on top, and then other times he'll keep the beat going, but all of the twang-a-langs suddenly get replaced with a piano that is keeping up the same rhythm, but it's this sudden change. There's just so many different moves he makes, and they all, yeah, feel like some kind of moment and some kind of feature that don't really line up with the moments and the feature in what we're watching, but they coalesce with them, nonetheless. Yeah, they support the action. I think in this way that I'm saying, they support the kind of existential framework that the story is built on. I mean, obviously this cue is supposed to be like the unstoppable grind of this character's life. But at the same time, at a more basic level, I think the steady rhythm says, here's the grid work, it's solid. Like, mm -hmm. Don't worry, this is well packaged. Yeah, the rhythmic grid feels, you know, like an architectural grid of some kind, some kind of grounding that things can rest on. This is a really good showcase movie for his style, in part because of what I'm saying, that the subject matter kind of resonates with it, and also in part just because the particular palette he chose for this movie is a really great one. It's just like oh, yeah. these kooky instruments. Yeah, so what are these kooky instruments, Andy, our resident kooky instrument wrangler? Well, here's the list of instruments uh, given in the soundtrack album credits. I have to admit that I cannot specifically pick out each of these things as a listener. But he mentions a lap steel guitar and a pedal steel guitar mm -hmm. and a banjo, a ukulele, an Appalachian dulcimer, Ooh. a detuned mandolin, and a mandola, which is kind of a deeper mandolin, mm -hmm. a saz, which is a kind of a Turkish lute. And all of these are stringed instruments that can make varying degrees of twangy mm -hmm. sounds. And they are all layered. You know, there's a huge variety of twanging going on in there. A whole lot of twanging going on. Then he also mentions in the wind family, a bass tin whistle, a flute and a processed bass flute. And then also the EWI, which is like a wind synth. It's like an electric wind instrument, which I believe is what EWI stands for. Electronic wind instrument, pronounced Iwi. Oh, oh yeah, I've seen those things. Those are kind of cool, actually. It's like a plastic recorder or something, and you actually blow into it, and it is able to recognize the pressure of your breath as you blow into it, and translates that into volume and dynamics. So you can kind of 
give a real human performance of a synth instrument that way. And then in the percussion section, the soundtrack album names Kim Kim Drums, which this took a lot of Googling, but I believe is what is more commonly called Udu, which is a Nigerian drum in the form of a clay pot with a hole in it. And you slap the hole and it resonates inside the pot and makes kind of a boom sound. I think this is the moment on the soundtrack where you hear the Kim Kim, but I have to admit I'm not sure because that sound is also very similar to a sound you can make with the other percussion instrument that's listed, which is the tabla, which you hear throughout the score very prominently. That's the Mm -hmm. Indian or South Asian instrument. It's these two drums. I mean, you recognize, I think everyone recognizes that as the Indian classical drumming sound. Sure. two drums of different sizes and they've got in the middle of each drum head is a part that like this hard paste has been put on so it makes a different sound when you strike it so you can make a lot of different noises with these and he lays out these elaborate tabla patterns and it has absolutely nothing to do with the Indian point of reference it has yeah. nothing to do with South Asia or even with exoticism in a stereotypical sense it's just a sound yeah you know I was actually put in mind of something you said about Planet of the Apes when we were talking about all the weird ethnic instruments that Goldsmith threw into that, you said, you know, these instruments are played in various places around the world, but just not in the same place. And he just picks them for their sound and makes this new texture out of it. And yeah, here there's all these exotic instruments, but it's absolutely not giving a sense of exoticism or being ethnic. They're used for their absolute sound and just kind of given totally new contexts. Yeah, I agree with that. On the other hand, I did see someone's YouTube comment, I think, some online comment. Let's read a bunch of those on the show. No? Uh, Just someone's comment. I thought, well, that's an interesting take, Uh where they said, you know, this is a movie about people's hidden passions and their secret emotional lives. And so, you know, even though it takes place in the very white, very American suburbs, these sounds of the world mean... There's all kinds of spices. There's the spices of the whole globe inside these people. Mm-hmm. I thought, all right, that's a cool take. I don't agree with it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like sure. that someone said it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I just think it's more accurate that he's just interested in what these sounds actually sound like as sounds, and he's composing with those sounds. This is what I think is so wonderful about Newman's style, Thomas Newman's style, so many Newmans. Yeah. Have we mentioned... Thomas Newman is the son of Alfred Newman. Amazing that the first score that we did on our show was an Alfred Newman score. And now this first score that we're doing in, you know, the second phase of our show is a Thomas Newman score, his son. The Newmans are everywhere. We might well come up against a Randy Newman score as we go along down the line. Right. He's a cousin. Yeah. There's David Newman. He's also a brother to Thomas. And then there's Lionel Newman, who was Alfred's brother back in the day. I don't know. if We're probably not going to do any Lionel Newman. But uh, are there other Newmans that we need to mention here? Uh, Well, there are, in fact, more. But that's already a fair number of Newmans. That's a lot of Newmans. It is a common Oscar trivia. And remember this for your next Oscar trivia night, is that the Newman family is far and away the most Oscar-nominated family Mm -hmm. if you add up all the different Newmans and all their different nominations. I will add here that in that interview with Thomas Newman that I watched, you know, one of the first questions, oh, your father's Alfred Newman, you know, what did he teach you about music and what did you get from him? And Thomas Newman's answer was like, uh, you have to understand that my dad died when I was very young because he had me when he was very old and by that time he kind of wasn't really that interested in, uh, you know, doing father stuff. So I didn't really get anything directly from him. And he was like, can can that be enough? Talking about Alfred Newman. So 
obviously being a part of this family affected what possibilities were opened up to him sure. and put in his head. You and, know, and that he had opportunities in this line of work. It's no coincidence that he went to this line of work. On the other hand, in terms of a direct musical relationship, yeah. uh, there's pretty strikingly different musical styles here. <laughs> like This is not a musical descendant of the Alfred Newman style in almost any way. Right. So the style that this is, what I think is so great about Thomas Newman's style is that it is this exciting kind of middle ground between a composed on paper, plan ahead, classical approach and a popular, you know, when a band scores a movie mm-hmm. and they kind of sit and improvise and Thomas Newman has found a really interesting hybrid style mm-hmm. and you get the benefit of both things in your ear. You know, when this movie came out, and I also was interested in the score and went out and got in the CD, and I remember thinking, how did he come up with, like, this little detail, and how did he even notate that? What is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, some kind of, you know, a squeak or a, some kind of a rattle, or and it comes at a funny moment. And the answer is, he didn't necessarily. He has a process in these kinds of scores where he builds a kind of a skeletal demo track in his home studio I assume with a synthesizer and with instruments that he has on hand and then brings that to a studio with some regulars who are his pals, instrumentalists his guys his guys yeah and then his guys play to it, but they add to it. They're using their intuition. It's not a strictly pre-composed thing. Yeah, these guys, you know, he has these regular players. You know, one of the guys is the kind of weird ethnic plucked instrument, twangy instrument guys. And one of the guys is the flute guy. And there's a percussion guy. And they kind of all have their own collections of interesting sounding unusual instruments that they bring and they all kind of trust each other you know i was reading about these sessions that he has where yeah he comes up with the idea of what's going to happen and he runs it by the director and does a demo and kind of conveys what is roughly going to happen and then he takes that demo into this small recording session with just his core guys and they kind of work it out together i was put in mind reading about it of sort of like a really tight, really highly accomplished jazz group. You get to reap the benefits, yeah, like you said, of this tight group that kind of knows what they're all going to do, trust each other to add interesting things and to get the vibe, to add their own takes into that vibe to kind of build the vibe up together. The spontaneity that you get through that and also the freedom to develop nuances that are just too fine a precision for notation to really be the way that you get at them. Yeah, right. You probably couldn't come up with stuff that sounds this way if you weren't planning in some degree of improvisation. It's an interesting tidbit that I didn't know. I just learned this while reading up that Thomas Newman has been a part of a free improvisation ensemble that has put out some albums of avant-garde, like truly freely improvised soundscape kind of stuff. Is that Tokyo 77? Is that what it's called? That's right, yeah. Did you listen to any of that? I didn't listen to it, no. It's not really related to his film scoring style at all, but just the fact that he participates in a thing like that and thinks in terms of improvisation Mm -hmm. so deeply, I think does show up in, yeah, that emphasis on color. Yeah, so like you said, a lot of the benefit that you get from a Thomas Newman score is in this hybrid approach because... 
he has these sessions and they kind of jam it out and experiment and figure out what the sound is going to be. And then he takes the result of that. He takes the recordings that they make and brings them to now a recording session with a traditional film orchestra and does the string section, which is fully composed, you know, not improvised at all. Then, you know, he is doing both the fully composed orchestral writing at the same time as his more spontaneous group stuff, you know, so you get both. Yeah, right. When you're listening to it, it has that quality of spontaneous felt color and it also is doing all of the fussy technical stuff it needs to do to land at the right times and, you know, block things out. Mm -hmm. It's a very strong and versatile technique. And a lot of Thomas Newman's scores, I mean, first of all, you can't mistake them for anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's a very distinctive voice. And they sound self-similar. A lot of them sound like each other. And right after he scored this, scored a bunch of other movies with very similar palettes possibly because he was asked to or also which i think is legitimate because this is where he was in his artistic process he was working with these sounds he had some new ideas yeah. there's this kind of continuous evolution in his work well i'm really confident that it was both yeah because it's well known that his scores are very ubiquitous favorite for use in temp scores for all kinds of movies so many movies that you know and see today are still tempt with Thomas Newman stuff. Don't you think that that particular value as temp music derives from what we were talking about earlier, how it relates to the drama? It's not really following yeah. the action. It's just supporting almost any drama from underneath. It's supporting the idea of a drama. It's supporting the idea of the legitimacy <laughs> of narrative. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's a really strong and deep kind of support. Yeah. On the other hand, in that interview, he said something about full orchestra scores, of which he has written some. Yeah. But he was talking about the old style, the style of most of the scores we've talked about on this show. And he said, he said, that's kind of a proscenium style where there's a pit orchestra that's playing it and you're sitting back and there's red curtains and you're watching this thing taking place on a stage. Whereas, you know, we have kind of a different dramatic taste these days. The style he's going for is for you're up close, you're in these people's, mm -hmm. you're intimately close to them in the style of a modern movie, and there's a high standard of realism, and so it needs to get at the drama from a different place. And I, listening to that, thought, I totally know what he's talking about. I'm just not sure it's so absolute as he's saying. I think that whether or not he feels it this way, it is a choice. It's not like the only way you could score American Beauty would be to sort of pull it back and not score the drama because that's not how movies are done anymore. You could have scored the drama. You could have scored actions. Movies are scored that way all the time still. And I think our ears are still willing to go there. That's just not what he does. No, and I read where he was saying that as opposed to, yeah, that proscenium style. I like that image. That's his word, for sure. Yeah. Others of his words are that when he's in this scoring mode, he is writing music for speakers, mm -hmm. which is to say for recording, music that you're going to hear played back over speakers and not performed live. The score that he's creating, at no point is he ever conceiving of it as a live performance, as opposed to, say, you know, a John Williams, who is kind of writing the orchestral suite for his scores alongside when he's actually scoring the movie. He's writing the stuff that he is going to assemble in the studio, that he's going to create 
sort of piecemeal out of these different styles of recording, these different processes for recording different performing forces, and layer them together and mix them. And it's a totally studio creation. You know, it's like Sgt. Pepper's as opposed to yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, earlier Beatles stuff. It's like they move into the studio and thought, oh, well, here's where all our toys are. We just want to play with our toys. You know, his core team of collaborators also includes technical people, not just his regular musicians. You know, he has music editors and recording engineers, people like that, that he works with all the time for all these different scores as well, who are very practiced in dealing with the particular demands of these different recording sessions. They set up the mics for all of them, and then they take the resulting tracks and prepare them from one session to the other so that the workflow can be continuous from one to the next. And then there's a lot of expertise in the mixing of them. And Newman really trusts these people on his team too to accomplish what he wants to accomplish you know obviously the technology has updated a bit since when we've in the past spoken about this kind of behind the scenes process stuff but you know it still takes a village to get all this work done there's always a village of people working on it but the difference in the modern era is that there's a zillion different angles of approach you can take to creating this final product because Mm -hmm. you have the freedom to clip and snip and alter things in ways that are pretty undetectable after the fact. So you can build things, you know, you can make a recording session that isn't timed and then just do all the timing on a computer. Or you can take samples from one section and build something on the computer in another section. The computer technology just allows such improvisatory flexibility Mm -hmm. in the whole process, which on the one hand is great because we'll think of all the possibilities that allows. And on the other hand, it may makes winging it without a real clear idea about what you're doing much more tempting. Yeah, but that's again why I want to praise Newman here, because he really does have an overarching vision. You know, he's not just relying on winging it. If you were just relying on winging it, I don't think you'd get results like this. No, absolutely not. I guess that's what you were saying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. probably talk about the cue, little cue, for the sequence that people remember because they use it on some posters. When Kevin Spacey is lying on his back in his bed, looking up at the ceiling and fantasizing about Mina Suvari being embedded in the ceiling in a sea of rose petals. Yep. And we hear this music. Boy, it's pretty. It's very pretty, yeah. I really love the way that this kind of cascading marimba, it really meshes with these other kind of tinkly elements. There are some percussion in the high register, and they all kind of gel into this homogenous, just like cascading loveliness feel. Yeah, some of these little figures just get stuck in my head as I've been listening to this music and preparing. This one, I just starts going in my head. It's very attractive surfaces of sound. But in this sequence, which, you know, this is the real moral puzzle at the middle of this movie. How dare they show this and play this music, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty gross because if you actually think about it, like this is really getting across that this, you know, creepy pedophiliac lust is like a worthwhile vital life force that is invigorating this guy. And isn't that great for him? Well, so, you know, we definitely are living in a uh, more forcibly woke time. And, you know, like, we're more concerned about these things in the public conversation than we were. But let's not be too unfair to 1999. It was morally unacceptable to make a movie that said that, you know, having sex with a minor is the route to spiritual awakening. No no one would have gone for that. So why did everyone go for this? Why is this scene? Because the music says, 
This is about whatever the spiritual awakening you need is. This is about the concept of spiritual awakening. And, you know, whatever floats your boat. Don't worry about what's floating his boat. It's the weirdest thing. I feel like I've been in a coma for about 20 years. And I'm just now waking up. The music says, I don't know about what he thinks is beautiful, but something being beautiful would be nice, right? Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think the music is so good that it, it almost gets to the point for me where Yes, yeah, that's right. The music is so good that it almost convinces you it's okay. But for me, it ties into what I was saying, that like the music is not applying to the guy, yeah. the action, his thoughts, his spiritual. Right. It's kind of applying at a very broad philosophical yes. level Agreed. to life in which stuff happens. And is that stuff sorted and bad sometimes or like flipped on its head? Uh, sure. But, you know, what about the life in which people have feelings? And, you know, this is someone who's having a feeling. What's interesting about this scene is that the grotesque, sardonic, satirical movie that governs this movie, that's inside this movie, does get some scoring in all of the other sequences where Kevin Spacey is fantasizing about Mina Suvari. Oh, that's true. There's this additional kind of music. That's true. That is playing the kind of grotesqueness of it. You're right. It absolutely is playing his lust in a black comic way that's true. as this kind of disturbing and bizarre kind of hypnotic force inside him. So this starts out when he goes to see his daughter, Thora Birch, dancing as a cheerleader at the high school basketball game. And Menasuvari is also in the same dance troupe and he keys in on just her and then everything, the whole world around him falls away into blackness and then he just fantasizes about her dancing for him. Yeah, we hear this creepy, like bizarre percussion stuff. You don't even know what this stuff is. This is Thomas Newman's percussion guy having a field day. Yeah, it's his percussion guy, but it also is a certainly samples. Oh, yeah, yeah, Certainly he's doing stuff with some cymbal samples that he's got. And comically, and you were saying playing with toys, like, I'm pretty sure there are power drill sounds in there, right? <laughs> yeah, the Sure. I mean, who knows what that really is, but that's what it sounds like to me. Which is funny. I mean, that's like kind of the musical equivalent of, you know, like the Tex Avery wolf, uh, <laughs> you know, hitting himself on the head with a right, hammer. his eyes bug out. Yeah, it's like, it's a disgusting kind of joke that is in no way endorsing these emotions. That's true. That's a good point in this one. And those tracks are really fun. They are. The third one has these detuned, I think, mandolin sounds, uh -huh. right? Is that what that is? Yeah. Detuned mandolin is credited on the soundtrack. Sure. I call them twangalangs. Yeah, that's what you were calling a twangalang. Well, there's a few different twangalangs, but that's definitely a twangalang. Using the out-of-tune instrument mm -hmm. to represent some out-of-tune emotions yeah. is so effective here. It's just such a wonderful sound. Yeah, and then another, I think, really effective timbral thing that, again, he introduces just for this third fantasy sequence in the bathtub is these big, balloony, sliding bass notes that go boom. Yeah. And that gives you this, like, Queasy, like zooming in feel that, like, boom, like the bottom is falling out. I was hoping you'd give me a bath. Very, very dirty. You, you have to give Thomas Newman credit for making this stuff both grotesque and yet not nauseating. Mm -hmm. 
it's in a place where, yeah, you're kind of smirking at this grossness, and the music is kind of making that smirk fun, and like, what a narrow little target. And he hits it with such a kind of joy in using all his crazy samples and his friends making noises. And Yeah, he has a directorial vision for the tone that he wants to land at, and he, you know, kind of directs his small ensemble and their toys and his own personal toys and is able to shape them this collaborative music making, and he sculpts it, yeah, right on target. I think is very, very laudable. I just want to go back to that cheerleader dance troupe for a second mm-hmm. at the basketball game. First of all, do you know who actually choreographed that dance that they're dancing for the movie? I do. It was Paula Abdul. How about that? Mm-hmm. And then the music that they're dancing to, it's this like marching band arrangement of On Broadway. Yeah, it's a great choice. <laughs> sure. But I just want to ask, is that being played like live for them by the high school marching band, do you think? Uh, it sounds like it's being played by a real high school marching band, but I don't know which high school marching band. Well, I, no, I'm going to say I think it sounds like it's being played by real professional session musicians, you know, playing a high school marching band chart, because no high school marching band is this in tune. This is, like, astonishingly well-played high school marching band music. That's what I want to say. I don't think you're giving high schools enough credit. I think there are some very together high school marching bands out there. Maybe yours wasn't, John, but I think there are some out there. Well, one of the best ones out there is playing this. If it's pros playing down, they're doing a much subtler and better job than in Jaws, where right. the, uh, <laughs> the high school marching band is just like some wrong notes. Right, and where they had to get actual Steven Spielberg playing clarinet to help it sound right. like... <laughs> I actually like this on-Broadway cue a lot sure. because it has that kind of plot quality that high school performances have where like whatever is fun about this song is not what comes across (laughs) and it makes a great thing for the dream to pop out oh yeah and the moment of popping in and out of it I think are negotiated beautifully Oh, but anyway, we're going to pop back to, so most of the pedophile storyline is scored this way, except for that one moment when he's on his back looking up at her in the ceiling. Well, then also the culmination of the pedophilia storyline is scored with... Oh, the delicate, the piano music. Is scored with the same music as the delicate plastic bag stuff, which we should get to. All right, let's talk about that stuff. I mean, you know, when he's in the living room with Minasuvari, and at first there's a song playing, there's some song that she puts on the stereo. Yeah, I have a comment about that, do you? Yeah, well, my first thought was, my gosh, it's a real cop-out to have this song playing instead of, like, actually owning what's happening here. I hope you don't mind if I play the stereo. Not at all. But then, sure enough, it cuts back to them a little later on, and now, yeah, it is owning it. It's owning it completely by playing this very lovely, delicate music that was our Isn't Garbage Beautiful music. Well, no, wait, it's not the Isn't Garbage Beautiful music. Oh, no, no, it's adjacent to that. Yeah, it's a separate piece of material. It's a very pretty, sad, minor theme, more melodic than the garbage music. No, I'm sorry, you're right. It's not the plastic bag cue. It's the stuff that we hear when Ricky is filming Jane through the window. Yeah, we associate it with Ricky's concept of beauty. Right, yeah. And also we associate it with a kind of sadness about Ricky's life alienated from his father and Jane's life alienated from her father. I think the first time we hear this theme is when Ricky is filming Jane and Lester, her father, through the window and they're having a kind of conversation about how they Mm -hmm. can't relate anymore. It's a mournful kind of a little tune. So when it shows up for the moment of the 
most discomfort in any year <laughs> when Kevin Spacey is actually taking off a teenager's clothes on screen. I think the effect is to make you feel that what's happening is essentially tragic, but it is quietly tragic rather than kind of gut-churningly tragic. What were you going to say about the song that plays in the scene before that? Well, here's the strange thing about that. So that song, it's an Annie Lennox cover of a Neil Young song. It arrives at this point near the very end of the movie. We have just for like 20 minutes before that heard the piece of material that Thomas Newman uses for the most time, the longest duration, which is these piano chords. These piano chords over and over, dun, 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 and he just lays them under many scenes. The whole scene where Ricky and Jane are talking about how they want to run away and they hate their parents. And then the whole kind of the real climax of the movie when Chris Cooper comes in the rain to confront Kevin Spacey in the garage and then, oh my God, tries to kiss him because he reveals his deepest secret. We hear this spooky little Thomas Newman figure under all of that. And the same material is playing through all of the run-up to the Who Shot Mr. Burns finale. Like, ooh, everybody has a motive. Everybody could have, you know, oh, look, she's got a gun. And Yeah, it's the music that basically says... I honestly thought I was going to get a laugh out of you with the... Who shot Mr. Burns finale? You get a laugh. Sure. Um, it was funny. <laughs> so we hear this music. It's basically the music that says, this is no good. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. The kind of like, things are not going to go well for these people at a real level, you know? Because it's the piano, because it's the kind of out-of-time, arrhythmic vocabulary, mm-hmm. it feels real. It's like, yeah, these people's lives are not so good, and these people, uh, something bad is coming for them. Sure. And indeed, since we know that Kevin Spacey is going to die, it becomes kind of the theme of his impending doom, or the doom of all of them. Right. But again, notice how little material this is built out of. Oh, very little. Very little. It's these piano it's the same little figure it keeps coming back to the same place it's got this very static ambient pad it's really just kind of laying there but again it manages to be so effective because it kind of invites the listener to read meaning into it yeah i mean let's talk more about that because that's what all of the sort of delicate piano material has those things in common but let me finish what i was going to say there's this long build up and now we get to finally oh my god the middle-aged man and the teenager that he's lusting for alone in a room together it's all been building up to this what's going to happen and at this important moment we hear as you say a pre-existing track this Annie Lennox track and I thought, whoa, listen. The first few chords yeah. in her accompaniment. I thought that too. Are those chords? And I was like, well, how did that happen? Does that mean that Thomas Newman heard that first? Or does that mean that the like music supervisor who made this pick heard what Thomas Newman had written and thought, I know something that sounds like that? I don't know how it happened, but however it happened... Yeah, I definitely did clock, wow, those sound like Thomas Newman chords coming over the radio now. Yeah, and so I thought, you said, oh, it's kind of a cop-out that they're not owning this. But to me, it felt 
actually right. It was like this doom that you've been hearing in the underscore now, as you said, is coming out of the radio. Like it comes into the room. It comes closer to them. If Thomas Newman is, as we've been saying, at this kind of distance, then here's a way that that music can get closer to them. And it, I, I don't know how it got arranged, mm-hmm. but I liked that. And I hadn't noticed that lining up before this time I watched the movie. Well, I guess I like that little serendipity, however it came about, but I still didn't like the fact of some exterior song playing over this particular scene. Anyway, but yeah, let's start talking about some pretty stuff again. Yeah. Well, so you were just saying that it's very little material. It's very few chords. Mm -hmm. I think it works because they are so carefully chosen. Yeah, they really are. There's real craft in that. If you're only going to have six notes or something, like one note in the left hand, two in the right hand, and then that moves. You know, it's not too much more than that. And you pick notes that merit meditation. Mm. What do they call it? Meditation? A, a, A mantra. You know, if you pick something that you can keep bringing your attention back to and it never feels exhausted because it's very upfront about being simple. Mm -hmm. It is what it is, and yet whatever emotional value it has, it's inexhaustible because it's exposed. And I think he does this with care and with impressive consistency. Yeah, it absolutely is incredibly impressive because it's deceptively simple. It's really hard to do to pick notes that seem just so and seem like the most natural, simple things. It's a really tall order and they sound almost improvised, but in this case, it's not improvised. It's very carefully chosen. And then I think what's even more carefully and more remarkably, effectively carefully chosen is this little tune for the plastic bag scene. Yeah, I mean, what an assignment. Yeah, here, I wanted to try an experiment to like convey what an assignment, because I think it's really startling what he does here. What he's doing throughout the movie, but really in this moment, which is like one of the marquee takeaway moments of the movie. It's like, uh, what's that effect called where, I think it's got a Russian name, maybe, where you show somebody a picture of a face of a person with a totally blank expression, Mm -hmm. and then whatever emotion the audience thinks is applicable, they read that into the blank expressionless face. You know what I'm talking about? I absolutely know what you're talking about. That's a famous effect, and I do not remember the name of it. (laughs) Well, maybe that's appropriate here because it's the concept of, yeah, yeah, you know what it is. It's that thing. It's something. Like, because I think that this music is kind of having that effect. It's amplifying such an effect. It's encouraging you to project emotions, to project some meaningful thoughts onto what's happening. The music is turning up the volume on some emotion. There's something here. You know, can't you feel something? And it's like a magic trick. It's astonishingly effective at that. So here's the magic trick I wanted to do. I was fooling around at the top of the show with playing some of this music over where you wouldn't expect it to be and seeing what effect that has. So I want to try to do the opposite here. I'm going to read the dialogue that Wes Bentley says in this scene as he's showing this video to Thora Birch, you know, because we don't have the work print of the movie before the score was put in there. So I want to give you an A-B here. I want you to hear what this is like without music behind it, okay? Okay. Okay, so here I go. So we're watching camcorder footage of a plastic bag flying around in the wind and some leaves and a brick wall. And Wes Bentley is saying, it was one of those days when it's a minute away from snowing and there's this electricity in the air. You can almost hear it, right? And this bag was just dancing with me. 
were watching garbage on the screen. Like a little kid begging me to play with it for 15 minutes. Yeah, I think that'll do it, John. Oh, okay. You know, a lot of people find the scene intolerable as is. So. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> well uh, <laughs> can you imagine if they had to hear me recreated without even the music? All right, but let's hear it now again with perhaps, you know, slightly better acting and this music behind it doing its gosh darn best to say, oh yeah, this emo babble really is onto something. It was one of those days where it's a minute away from snowing. And there's this electricity in the air. You can almost hear it. This bag was just dancing with me. Like a little kid begging me to play with it. For 15 minutes. All right, look, I just don't want to be a cosign on emo babble. Okay. <laughs> I think it is about something. You're saying that it's kind of smoke and mirrors and what beautiful smoke and mirrors. And I think, no, Alan Ball had this experience and it is an experience that one can relate to, but it is very hard to package and turn into a Hollywood movie and put on a giant screen and get people to remember what he's talking about. That he had this experience where he was sitting and a plastic bag was flying around and he had a spiritual reaction to it. Like that seems to have some kind of transcendental force behind it. I feel a sense of companionship with the universe and something is meaningful i i feel it at an immediate level because i'm watching this kind of animated thing that i know to be inanimate that is an experience that is a real experience that people can have and yet to say all right we're gonna have these actors and there's gonna be a video of it and then they're gonna talk about it and then people are hopefully going to get in that frame of mind and think that. The burden on the composer to kind of ring the right bell. And I must say that Wes Bentley does a very good job with this tough monologue. Sure. I didn't mean to cast any aspersions on him. Sure, everybody in this movie is doing a nice job. Everyone does a good yeah. job. Sam Mendes does a good job. Conrad Hall, the photographer, does a wonderful job. But yeah, I feel like Thomas Newman here yeah, just had to know what bell to ring so that the mass audience would go, yeah, it's like when you suddenly have a kind of unexpectedly spiritual intuition. Yeah, I know what that is. You know what Newman had to do? He actually had to do the thing that I think is Wes Bentley's next line before you cut me off there. He says, that's the day I realized that there was this entire life behind things Mm -hmm. and this incredibly benevolent force, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But this entire life behind things. I mean, isn't that just what you were saying in the last episode? The music is. It's encouraging you to imagine that there is a whole mythic experience that the particular thing you're watching is just some aspect of, just one example of it. There's a whole world behind it. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, I feel like Newman here is kind of being asked to write music that explains what the job of music is in movies in the first place. 
because I, I, <laughs> I still think there's sort of not much else to what is saying here. I feel like the move this movie wants to make is just to give you that feeling that there is something behind it. It's this kind of meta achievement that he's made, that he picked these notes so carefully and deployed them so judiciously. He's left just the perfect amount of space between them and gives them just the right relationship that it opens up this feeling to you that there is something behind. There is a beyond, there is a deeper meaning. I feel like it's a stunning achievement to be able to have gotten it that right for that specific feeling. Yeah, my take, as I said at the beginning, is that that gets invoked in many movies for just basically shallow movie reasons. Like, <laughs> it feels good to watch a movie if there's a deeper meaning behind things. Right. So let's have some music that conveys that. And here, you know, again, I don't entirely share your cynicism that there's no there there. I think there is a there, and it's that that feeling, you know, sort of the core feeling of any kind of spiritual framework for life that, well, things are meaningful in some sense, is important to leading your life. And for this scene to try and say that explicitly, I think it's not just smoke and mirrors. It's a real offering that, yeah, is surrounded by, you know, it's very weird. It's weird that he put it in the <laughs> script at all. It's weird that this movie tries to get there. And anyway, about this style that you're saying where he picks the notes and leaves the space between them, as you said, that's such yeah. an important part of it. Instead of this rhythmic grid, there's like a breathing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, here's the phrase. Yeah, and then now just sit with it for a moment. particular chords that, you know, as they move, they're neither settled nor unsettled. Anyway, I think he took a fair amount of this. I think it's worth naming a probable influence on this, okay. which I am going to say is the music of the composer Arvo Pert. Hmm. He's a distinguished Estonian composer. He's still alive, I believe. And he wrote a bunch of music starting in the 70s in this style of sort of his own invention, which is very closely related to this in that it's a few sounds. There's a bell-like quality. They ring in the space. There is space between them. The objective is a meditative, spiritual experience. You know, it's not minimalism, but it's minimal in its materials. And his most famous piece is this piece that maybe when you hear it, you might say, oh, I think I've even heard that, called Fratris. Let's play a little bit of it here. And it has a lot in common with this cue, and the reason that I am going the distance to actually say, I think Thomas Newman had this in mind, is because in a score from, I think, the previous year, 1998, that he wrote for Meet Joe Black, mm. he uh, pretty much just rewrote this piece. I mean, just, <laughs> it's the same piece in the same position with the same chords. He just used it in his score. So I think he definitely had in his head an idea of how music might get at a vast cosmic spiritual meditative space. 
and he was right. He was right. He was right. Even if you think of it as a kind of going to the record collection and making a choice and then imitating that choice, it's a beautiful choice. And it is, in fact, more than that. It's a composition in itself. Yeah, well, I mean, as you said in the Star Wars episode, you know, that's what everybody does. You know, that's what any artist does, really. That's what composition is. That's what yeah. creation is. Yeah, just wanted to play a little clip of that so you can hear Sure, it. no, but that's interesting to hear that influence. I believe that totally, that that was an influence. Why shouldn't it be? Okay, I'm not sure if I have anything else I want to cover. Yeah, well, um, here's the problem, John. What do we do at the end of the show? So we have to come up with how, <laughs> yeah, how these things work. Right. You said before that you were really looking forward to getting to the end of the AFI list so that you didn't have to do this awful chore of ranking these movies anymore. Right. All right, well, Andy, here you are free. Terrible, terrible freedom. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, well, I mean, do we need some kind of rigmarole that signifies that we have completed our assignment? Yeah, maybe we do. Or do we just say, uh, we did it? (laughs) Uh, Maybe this is a slippery slope, but let me just ask you, do you think that this score is better than some of the entries on the AFI's list of 25? Yes. I do too. (laughs) You really want to extend that list infinitely? No, I don't think I do. It's not really fair because the whole point of the list of 25 was that it was circumscribed ahead of time for us. And like they said, these are the 25 things and this is the order they come in. But if we're actually opening it up to anything, then why should this get ranked? Because calling up the list right now, I'm going to look at this. American Beauty. Oh, I don't know. It's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. As soon as I look at these, it's like Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind. Why do I need to keep thinking about those? Yeah, we don't. We're done. We're done with that. But is there a thing? Is there a thing we can do? Do you think that we should, you know, start a new list of the stuff that we do from here on out? Because I am really very confident in saying that this is the number one best score we have talked about since finishing the AFI list. Our season two list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, that certainly delays the issue of whether we're going to have a thing or not uh if we're making a new list Mm -hmm. then yeah i agree that this is the only thing on it (laughs) maybe you know here's maybe what we need okay i think we need closing statements ah all right i think we don't need to rank it but we need to put a period on what each of us believes in so maybe that's something we needed to have prepped or maybe you can wing a closing statement but i think us being like are we done is a bad ending (laughs) and saying so in conclusion is a better ending yeah that's true and i mean that's sort of what our rankings wound up being were closing statements so i think you're right about that yeah so just give uh sure i'll make a closing statement i think that this score is superlative work i think that it is so successful at giving you the feeling that something somehow is meaningful that it carried this otherwise icky movie to the top of the heap. The score, I think, lives on. The score lives on absolutely in music that gets written for movies today, in innumerable temp scores that you never hear, but people are asked to write music that sounds like this. But I think the score stands as a real monument and a real insight into how to use music. That hybrid approach that you mentioned, it takes real confidence Confidence in yourself, in your idea of what things should be, confidence in your collaborators to have worthwhile things to contribute, and in the whole ecosystem of the engineering and mixing of the project. I think it's a work of supreme confidence and supreme accomplishment. So boy, that sounds like I would have put it up pretty high on a list that I'm not making. But uh, that's what I think about this score. I think that this score is... Very satisfying as just sheer music making in a style that doesn't exist in other, you know, this music couldn't arise in any other tradition. And 
it's full of pleasures and interest and surprises and creativity that is satisfying just as a selection of tracks. Yeah, like Thomas Newman said, it's music for speakers. It's studio music. It's not for a performance. It's meant to be this arrived at through process kind of result. Right. And also, as he said, it's music about color. Yeah. If you're an aficionado of musical color, I think you can't deny that this palette is an achievement in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just picking this palette really is such a large percentage of the composition. I'm sorry. You didn't butt in on my closing statement. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for noticing that I didn't do that, but it's okay. <laughs> and yes, and that palette, I think, is part of a long, career-long organic process for Thomas Newman. So it is not just this score. It's his body of work. Did I play it earlier? Like, Here's a cue from Pay It Forward. I think it's the next year or two years later, also with Kevin Spacey in a mock spiritual movie. <laughs> And it's the same palette. It's the same stuff. And, you know, you'll hear the samples of that detuned mandolin in other a very specific sound. But, you know, it's in uh, Thomas Newman's toolbox mm -hmm. and it comes back. But at this particular moment in the evolution of his toolbox and for this particular movie that had use for a musical perspective that stands way back you hear a lot of movies that kind of take that tack of like, this is just the way things go and things certainly are going. Mm. And, and that's what the music is saying. I think that that can be used in a kind of one size fits all way. But in this particular movie, it blooms a bit because <laughs> the movie needed that. Yeah. The movie would have fallen apart without that. And with it, it seems potentially deep and potentially intentional in ways that I think are lucky for all concerned, yeah. but also arise from the craft that Thomas Newman has been building you know, one step at a time through his whole career. John, you sounded pretty cynical through this conversation, and I certainly have sounded cynical at times, but I want to say that while I was watching it and while I'm listening to the music, it is giving me something good. The music, no doubt, is giving you something good. Gave me something good, too. Yeah, the music is giving me something good. For sure. And it's saying, you can watch the movie this way, <laughs> and I okay. go, you know what? I think I can watch the movie this way. And then I have other thoughts that are like, man. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think the same thing. I mean, and amen to what you said, that this score is absolutely necessary to the movie coming off at all. Without the music, God knows what this movie is. And with the music, it was a huge hit of that year, despite being truly bizarre yeah. then and now. <laughs> right. Well, so let's just take away from it that, boy, what a good job this score did. Uh, yeah. Are you ready to do the drawing? Yeah, I think that we might not have a satisfying wrap-up for the movie itself at this point, but we certainly have a satisfying final gimmick on the show, which is drawing the next episode's subject. Yeah, that's true. That's exciting. Before we knew what movies were coming up, now we have no idea. That's right. So you said you wanted to stick with Robin Hood fanfare music. I suggested trying to find some bit of score from that episode's score as the anticipation music. Is there anything that comes to mind from the score that we could use? Uh, well, let's keep you saying that, and then let's <laughs> hear my best attempt. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what you have to work with when you're working with American music. Yeah, it's tension. What's going to happen? I'll let you do it this time. All right. Let's do at least one more restricted to just new composers and the last 30 years. Okay. Right? Sounds good. I think that sounds good. And then we'll throw it open to... We'll start opening it up yeah. next time. 
Uh, before we even do this, let's say, since we made a call for suggestions, people have sent in some suggestions. Oh, yeah. And we are taking them and putting them in the list. They're all good suggestions. Keep sending suggestions. Any suggestion is a good suggestion. And, yeah, keep turning them in. Okay. That tension music has been running a long time at this point. Oh, yeah. All right. And the lottery ball machine that we are clearly physically using right now, mm-hmm, I am mm-hmm. now physically removing a physical ball from I it. I can hear it. And the ball tells me that next time we are going to be talking about the score to yes. Interstellar by Hans Zimmer, 2014. Oh, wow. Hey, a really recent one. That's cool. Yes. We have already talked about Hans Zimmer on the Oscars show, but not on his own show. So he got to be on this list. Yeah. That score is pretty loud. I can say that right off the bat. (laughs) Did you see this movie? I have not seen it. So this is going to be new to me. I have seen it. I liked this movie. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I think it's going to be really interesting to talk about uh, what Hans Zimmer is doing. Boy, I I bet you're going to have interesting things to say about whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yes. I always have interesting things to say (laughs) about whether I like things or not. If you think that's true, listen. Listeners, uh, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's not discuss whether that's true. <laughs> but they do think it's true, and they say so frequently on uh, iTunes, where they don't tempt the ones who disagree to write in and correct you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, write in, say nice things about us on iTunes. Look, it really helps out. We're starting in the new phase of the show, and we want people to know that it's still going along and have it still show up in their iTunes searches, so those reviews really help. And yeah, chime in on Twitter and suggest more movies and tell us what you thought about American Beauty. We're on Twitter, of course, at Scoresettlers. So uh, yeah, we'll see you back here next time for some duration of conversation about (laughs) Interstellar. Here's hoping it is a smaller duration than the movie has. Is it long? It's kind of a long movie, yeah. Look, I'll say now, I am by nature predisposed towards these like prestige space epics that there was a run of them in those years, like the year before this. Was, I saw Gravity. Yeah. I just didn't see this one. The year before this was Gravity, and then in this, and then there was the, uh, I don't know, there's other stuff like that. But like, I really dig that kind of prestige space epic story, and I think it's going to be fun to talk about it and what Zimmer is doing for it. All right, I'll tell you my biases. Okay. I like those kinds of movies, but I often feel like the scores to movies that are about Uh, uh, awe are simplistic because that's the best way to get at it and not that interesting musically. So I'm looking forward to finding out whether that's what this is. Well, (laughs) yeah, I wonder what you're going to say. All right, we'll discuss. Uh, (laughs) All right, join us next time and... I can I can see the whole conversation is playing out in my head right now. Well, I'm looking forward to watching the movie. I'm mean, like I was happy when I hit a movie I haven't seen because woo now I get to watch a movie. Yeah. All right. Enjoy watching the movie. See you then. See you then. Thanks. Okay. Bye.